Welcome to episode 306 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. As always, we got so many good things to talk about on this episode because you know what's better than single imputation? Double imputation. Double imputation. So that's coming. That is coming. And if those two terms mean nothing to you now, well, then have we got a great conversation headed your way. And if you've heard of double imputation before, it's better than single. And it's also coming your way still. So it's going to be great as always. It's going to be definitive as always. But you know what also is really good is getting a little denial and a little affirmation in at the top. And so let's do it. Let's though go negative first so we can end on this high note. All right. We'll go from the trough to the zenith. So what are you denying against? Well, people are going to be surprised at this and maybe a little bit aghast. Yes. I'm denying Thomism, but I'm denying Thomism in a very particular way. So Thomism has been the big buzzword in all of the Reformedish Baptists are up in arms about Thomism. And one of the things that I've noticed is it's become kind of like this catch-all buzzword, right? So if if you affirm classical theism, uh, if you affirm you know, the historic doctrines of the Reformed faith as it relates to uh, the metaphysics of the Trinity or the metaphysics of God or the Incarnation, then you are a Thomist. If they're really being polite, they might call you a Reformed Thomist. Um, The reality is I'm denying Thomism because that's not anything particularly unique with Thomas. So Thomas, um, Thomas was a significant expounder of these doctrines uh, in the Middle Ages he synthesized these doctrines and re-articulated them in light of the Aristotelian rediscovery that happened in the high Middle Ages. But nothing that he says is partic- about, this, about this particular subject is particularly unique to Thomas. So I'm denying Thomism in that Thomism has become this like boogeyman for some and this pinnacle of thought for others. And the reality is that this theology was worked out and articulated in the second and third century. Um, now it goes through it goes through growth and development and articulation and refinement. Thomas refines it in a particular way, some of it helpful, some of it not. Um, but overall, he wasn't really doing anything all that new. And I don't think he saw himself as doing anything all that new. Um, Calvin and the rest accept that metaphysics even though they don't particularly uh, appreciate Thomas. So uh, Calvin only mentions Thomas Aquinas twice in the Institutes and both times is disapprovingly. Uh, Luther was not particularly fond of Thomas Aquinas. Uh, The the scholastic, the Protestant Reformed scholastics, uh, it was a mixed bag how they felt about Thomas. They tended to be okay with his metaphysics and not okay with the rest of his theology. And I just want to throw this out there. The reason that those of us who are quote unquote reformed Thomists, which I am not, I've never been a Thomist. I actually don't think reading Thomas is all that particularly helpful. Uh, I think he says a lot of things in really expansive ways that you could understand a lot simpler by reading other people. But that said, um, 
it's not anything novel, but what we can do if we're not careful, and there are some on the kind of quote unquote reform Thomas side that I think are verging in their zeal to sort of rehabilitate and this sort of resourcement uh, movement with Thomas, they're starting to elevate Thomas as a figure, uh, as a reaction to those who are sort of making Thomas the boogeyman and denigrating him. We're losing sight of the fact that these doctrines don't originate with Thomas. They don't originate with Aquinas. They are biblical doctrines that are articulated by the church throughout the ages. And I think we need to be really careful how we phrase our our reliance and our dependence on creeds. Because if we're not careful, then we become the sort of problematic confessionalists that uh, are we're being accused of being. So we really should do the work of understanding how the confessions, how the people who wrote the confessions arrived at these conclusions from the scriptures. And we should do the work of being able to explain these doctrines from the scriptures, not just appealing to the, the reformed confessions. It's better to appeal to a, an ecumenical creed or a reformed confession than it is to appeal to an individual. But we should really be competent and capable of going all the way back to the scripture to articulate these. So just as an example, if you were talking about the doctrine of divine simplicity, uh, you would go to Deuteronomy 6.4 and you would talk about how the oneness expressed in the Shema is a oneness of unity not a oneness of numeric numerical significance. So it's the oneness that a bunch of grapes has. It's the oneness that a man and his wife has. It's the unity that's there. And so you you go from there and you bring in other passages about the nature of God, the uniqueness of God, how God is totally independent of himself. And that all synthesizes to the doctrine of simplicity by good and necessary consequence. So I just wanted to throw that out there. I think that there's a lot more heat than there is light in some of these discussions. And what's falling by the wayside in some of these is the effort necessary to really drive these doctrines and derive these doctrines from the scripture. That's fair. I can get down with that. This seems to be one of those things that's cyclical, mm-hmm. you know, like the Thomistic approaches like seem to come up here and again. Yeah. And usually it's because of probably a mischaracterization or abuse. And then, it creates equal but opposite responses from a party that either is offended or feels like they need to justify or put on blast the other side. And so then we end in this. So it rises from time to time, doesn't it? We almost yeah. seem to come back to this, even though there's nothing new there in the theology. The discussion itself seems to arise from time to time. Yeah. I, feel, I see this on like a cyclical trend. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. And it's not just Thomas. Like sometimes it's name your historical theological exactly. figure. Right. right. Sometimes it's Bart and people really get jazzed up about Bart and they try to rehabilitate Bart. Sometimes it's, you know, some patristic father or some other historical figure. Um, it, it doesn't really matter. And as, as Protestants, particularly as confessional Protestants, we should not be ashamed of our heritage. We should embrace the right. fact that we're not the first persons to, to figure this stuff out. And and it's totally fine to not have to do all the work, right? Most of the time, especially when you're among other confessional reformed brothers and sisters, you don't have to show your math, right? You can just go and you can go to the confessions and it's, you know, it's a standard operation, right? You don't have to explain all the mathematics, all of the all of the operations behind it. You just say this is the confession, here are the proof texts. This is what we agree upon and so we don't need to we don't need to argue it out because we actually agree upon it. But when you're in a context where the theology is at in dispute itself, the theology itself is in dispute, 
uh, then we do need to be able to do the hard work of going back to the scriptures. And that's part of why the proof texts are given to us in these confessional statements, right. is because it's driving us back to the text in order to be able to articulate the uh, the biblical logic that's coming out. So here's another example. Rather than just point to chapter 8 of the Westminster Confession, which is a phenomenal statement of Christology. It's a phenomenally concise, articulate, clear um, expression of classic Orthodox Christology. But rather than just go back there when you want to make a point about how you interpret Matthew 24 or whatever, you should be able to do the hard work of going to Ephesians 2 or Philippians 2 and explaining how we derive this two-nature Christology and how these natures interplay with each other from the fact that Christ was always in the form of God and he took on the form of a servant and how how that works, the, the logic behind that, that eventually became Chalcedonian logic or Westminster Confession logic. So it's it's worth it to do the hard work. You could pick up a book like Confessing the Faith by Chad Van Dixhorn, which is a commentary on the Westminster Confession, and he's done a lot of that heavy lifting for you, right? He's done He's hammered out that path already. But the proof texts that are given to us in the confessions are not the only texts that can be used to prove a doctrine. So when I was uh, I was at an OPC presbytery meeting and I was talking to them about the ordination process and how how someone could get ready for that and how we would study for that. And they said the best way to do it is have your confession in one hand and a pad of paper on the other hand. And when you read a document or a doctrine, you write down all the verses that you know would support that doctrine. And if you can't think of a if you can't think of passages that would support that, then that's your homework is to go find how that doctrine is developed from the scripture rather than just appealing to the confessions. So, yeah, that's good. I think advice for both study and practice generally. Yeah, there should be no no reason really that we as Christians, if we're going to espouse a doctrine, that we can't at least understand or know where to go to process that doctrine. So even if we there's mystery for us and we have various levels of intellectual capacity and different levels of experience in the teaching we've received according to that intellectual capacity. Still, this idea, I think, is good, knowing that this is what the scripture teaches. So again, we keep talking about that muscle memory. It's not enough to vouchsafe that to some other external document yeah, and to try to rely on that. It is the kind of thing that helps, I would say, like synthesize and distill down. And especially because what you get in the confessions many times, like you said, is brevity is the test of real true understanding. Right. So these really short compartmentalized, but fully orbed expressions and articulations of complicated doctrine. That's fine, of course. And that should be the kind of thing we ought to strive through to be able to say in our own words, not because principally we find it in the confessions, but principally because we find it in the scriptures and the confessions help us to understand it and therefore then to process it going back into the text itself in the Bible and then to say it in our own words. So it becomes part and parcel of our conversation and our own thought process. Yeah. So we, we just have to do that. And it is difficult. And I, in the sense that like it does take energy, don't you think? Like there is a little oh, yeah. volition there. Yeah. And we ought to be praying that the Holy Spirit would give us a hunger, not just to know like biblical data, to know things about stories or accounts yeah. or characters in the scripture itself, but how all those things point to Christ. And in their pointing to Christ, they come into our lives in a way that is renewed and empowered by the Holy Spirit so that we understand how to live and then how to express the way that we're living and why we live this way yeah. and why God is who he is in a way that is articulate and meaningful to us and to the people with whom we're conversing. Like yeah. all those things are super important. So 
these documents help us to do that. We should just avail ourselves of them, but not remove responsibility for ourselves right. in processing them and going to the scriptures to understand what it says. Yeah. Yeah. And and it, it it takes a lot less energy to just appeal to a confession. And that's actually part of the point right. of the confessions is so a given doctrinal body that has already got an agreed upon you know body of doctrine doesn't have to go back to spend that energy every single time they want to test somebody for ordination or measure whether someone is teaching heresy. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't on an individual level or even on a corporate level once in a while, you shouldn't go back and revisit those doctrines and say, how do, how do we derive right. these from the scriptures? If I was to be in a discussion with somebody who does not affirm this confession, how would I defend this? Doc- and I think that this is what we're seeing, right? This is part of what's going on in, and like I said, it's, it's predominantly, happening among people who claim to hold the 1689 London Baptist Confession. And and I've talked to a few people who are are kind of involved in this movement on the confessional side, on the the sort of Thomas side. And what what happened is a lot of people got really excited about the 1689 London Baptist Confession, people who are coming out of sort of this minimalist Baptist theology out of the, out of the SBC predominantly, and they they fell in love with this confession, and they didn't really understand what all was being said, particularly in the first seven or eight chapters of, met, of the metaphysics parts. So as they learned and grew, they realized that what they were confessing actually had a lot more to it in terms of this underlying theology. And now, now all the hard work is being done to go back and understand what the scripture is saying. So James Dolezal is a perfect example of this work being done. He is going back, he's doing the historical theology to understand what it is the confessions actually articulate. And then he's also doing the theological and exegetical work to show how it is that the Bible supports and drives those doctrines into being. So yeah. yeah, that's great. Well, I mean, it's it's also kind of it strikes me as it's we make it far more complicated than it often has to be. Yeah. So again, these things are helpful resources in some ways, and I don't mean this pejoratively. They're training wheels. They give us a guide rail. They help us stay upright. But at the end of the day, you know, I think sometimes people will hear us talk and they get overwhelmed by this idea of there's so many things I don't understand or know that not just right. in language, but in the way that you're kind of giving this clarion call to somehow understand these things in a really profound way. And yes, that is true. I mean, we're trying to get after those things. It is you know, like the join the pleasure of Kings to seek out mysteries, but even just like beyond that, to know that God has given us his word in full and that's everything is necessary for life. Yeah. for understanding salvation and then has given us the best teacher imaginable, which is the Holy spirit to indwell and to illuminate and to enlighten. That really ought to be our prayer. And this, it starts with the simplest of prayers, which is to sit before the scriptures and to ask that God would open our eyes yeah. to see, and then our ears to hear clearly and our minds to understand and our hearts to apply. But all of that comes without this kind of stress, stress to know that there is a stress in wanting to come before God to be hungry and to be thirsty. And even if we're not there, knowing that we can pray, Lord, would you help me yeah. to want to be hungry and thirsty for your word? That these things seem dry and dusty to me. Doctrine seems like a word that's better suited for somebody in a classroom than for me in my bedroom. But it is knowing that the Holy Spirit comes to us as the ultimate teacher and empowers all of this so that we might have it in full form and to have it in a way that's meaningful and that gives glory to God. So I'm always comforted by that fact, no matter yeah. how much we talk about 
all these other things surround it. I often sometimes wonder if those things end up for us, like just generally, I'm not thinking of any person in particular, but kind of being, they get overwhelmed and overshadowed by the ego that says like knowing something is having achieved something. Yeah. And being able to say something is being able to have command over that thing. And where God comes and humbles us is to say, always like you don't know, understand anything. Right. Like you, and so to like come to this place of humility and graciousness and just to receive from God, the means of grace, through the scripture and through prayer is I think a place that we all ought to be drawn to. And if you feel like you're overwhelmed and that's where you end up, then I think you're in exactly the right place. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? What are you uh, denying today, Jesse? I feel like in some way mine is related to yours, but not exactly. And now I'm feeling like my denial is super weird, uh, just in like, there's no good segue. And I have to offer just a, a minute of explanation. So I'm, you know, the internet is a wonderful, wild, crazy place. I'm always finding new things on it that I didn't expect. And so I recently came across something that perhaps others have also seen. There is a YouTube channel that is done by a bishop in the Catholic Church. His name is Bishop Barron, and he does all kinds of interviews. He's just completed an interview, I think it was released just days ago, with Shia LaBeouf. And the reason this interview took place is because apparently Shia LaBeouf is uh, playing a role in a new movie about Padre Pio, which is its oh, own thing. Go geez. Google that. Yeah, go Google that. Yeah. That's its own thing. Uh, but here's the deal. I'm actually first commending the interview for people to watch. It's about an hour and a half long. And I think it's almost impossible to not be moved by what's said. First, I find Shia LaBeouf to be very articulate. And basically, I don't want to spoil the whole interview because I think it's worth watching again. But what you're going to see is a man who clearly was in a life that was on fire, as he says, was destructive to the uttermost reaches of human behavior. And essentially, this role, the fact that he was asked to play this particular role, which again, you should Google, uh, brought him into contact and research with the Catholic Church. And I think there is some kind of legitimate, genuine conversion that's taken place in his life. What's moving about this is you're going to hear a lot of wonderful articulation about the gospel that is spot on. Where the denial comes in is you'll see here is where I think the Catholic Church, it, the the interview deviates from, again, what I would consider to be orthodoxy into strange places where you can see it's it's almost right. They'll be talking about something and say, that's that's right there. It's it's almost right. And then it will devolve into conversations about something like the physicality that is necessary for spiritualism, whether that's holding the rosary in your hand to pray or it manifests in the mass. Or it'll move into, there's a long and very interesting discussion about, many Catholics, of course, today debate the Mass in its traditional Latin form versus its modern, more contemporary, whatever the common language of the, of the country is form. And there's a lot there about performance and feeling. And in fact, there's a part of the conversation about how it's not necessary to understand the words so much as to feel that something important is happening there. This to me is the strongest denial I can have against those very things in spirituality yeah. that they are in some ways or in, in other words, there's like a path, almost like Pilgrim's progress. There's a pathway and there is a, a fence separating these two pathways. They run parallel to each other. One is this Orthodox pathway of what we have is faith and we see things not by sight, but by that faith itself, which God has given to us in this life. And the other pathway is the one that wants to diverge into tactile and experientialism for the sake of those things to reinforce the orthodoxy. 
And it's easy to look over in the other path. And sometimes it's easy to jump the fence. But once you're on that other path, you realize that that path just leads to destruction. That in fact, there's like a massive chasm that opens up underneath you as you try to process everything then through those means because you need them now yeah. to get back to the orthodoxy. And when they flee away from you, as they inevitably will, according to like your sentiment or whether or not you ate too much cheese that day, all that stuff will happen. And what it will cause you to do is to question your faith itself, like the faith that God has given to us. So this is a phenomenal interview. And I really mean that in that strictest sense. It's really interesting and worth watching. You're going to hear a lot of interesting things. You're going to hear strong and clarion sounds of the gospel. And then I think actually better than like a debate about, you know, Protestantism versus Catholicism, you're going to hear some of those essential things in Catholicism reinforced that I think, well, should give us all pause. But if you've been listening to us for quite some time, I think you're going to at least have the experience of like, wait a second, that doesn't seem quite right. Yeah, yeah. And you're, you're going to hear a lot of things that are interesting. So I'm denying against those things because this, in this interview, which is, I think, very genteel, very candid, very open, especially from Shia LaBeouf's perspective, you're going to hear how somebody who's searching desperately and deeply for the true things of life, for the truth of life, and for the one who is the resurrection and the life, how there's this weird conflation in the practices of Catholicism that I would say at worst pervert that and at best dilute that. So I'm denying against those things. But with that said, definitely everybody should go look up Bishop Barron presents Shia LaBeouf and his conversation about Padre Prio and his research for this new role that he's undertaking. Yeah. So I don't have much to add to that because I haven't seen this interview, but I'll add two things, uh, three things. First, if you think that uh, Protestants have the corner on crazy, weird, charismatic nonsense, uh, then look up <laughs> Padre Pio. Yes. Uh, because he, wow. This, this, so sometimes it's funny because Roman Catholics um, sometimes sound like the most like intellectual, rational people, uh, which is actually partially because of Thomas's influence on the Roman Catholic uh, theology. There's the connection. Uh, well, yeah. Wait until we get to my denial and or my <laughs> affirmation. Uh, and then... And then they start talking about miracles in Padre Pio and by location and, and it, right. it goes off the rails real quick. So in some ways it's, it's an interesting um, interplay of rationality and irrationality. And secondly, this is also a good time to remind everybody about a previous affirmation, which is huffduffer.com. If you don't feel like sitting in front of your computer and watching an hour and a half long interview, uh, you can go to huffduffer.com and create your own podcast feed and then feed this into that feed and listen to it on your favorite podcast catcher app thingy. So I'm going to check this out. It looks like an interesting interview. Um, it might be interesting just in general to watch this Padre or this Bishop Barron guy, because it seems like he might have some interesting interviews. So yes, for recommending I, I, that. yeah, I think it's again, I, this is the kind of thing we ought to be from time to time exposing ourselves to, because it does help us to, to your point, Tony, I think, like really understand the essentials of our faith, the doctrines yeah. that we ought to hold at the center of who we are in both life, like identity and practice. So you're going to get a lot of good practice, no pun intended, by listening to this. But again, th- I, I really challenge people, you're going to listen to this and there will be parts of it that are spot on. You and I have said before, actually, that there's great hope wherever the gospel is being preached. And in many places in the kind of Catholic tradition, the gospel is being preached. Right. You know, at, at least the scriptures are being opened 
and hopefully expounded upon. And you're going to hear, I think, maybe this might be shocking for some, like Shia LaBeouf give like essentially a gospel presentation. Yeah. And I was like, the dude is understanding something here. There, there seems to me there's no doubt that God is at work and on the move in his life. And then there is this conflation of strange things. And it just shows us how like, unless we make ourselves by the power of the Holy Spirit committed, and maybe this goes back to your denial, committed to the scriptures and everything that they teach and to vouchsafe and to trust that God has dominion over our understanding, over our preferences, that he knows best and that we, he says is true. Unless we do that, we're just always going to be prone to error. Yeah. So in many ways, we should always be praying, Lord, save me, save us, save your church, bring about a purity to the gospel. And so you can see how, I think at one point they even speak a little bit pejoratively of, of Luther, of course, for, yeah. for the good reason for them. But you can see how like, I think you, many people will process would listen to this and be like, no, no, no. Like I, I want to, I want to stand up. Like yeah. where's a church door that I can nail some things too. Like after the result of this conversation. So it's just worth listening for that. So, but we've got the more or less denial negative stuff out of the way. So let's kind of end on a little bit of a, a higher note before we talk about double imputation. What are you affirming with? So I'll, I'll go quick on this one. This is like the all Roman Catholic all the time <laughs> affirmation denial series. So I'm affirming up. It's not really a podcast, but you get it through your podcast app. It's called Aquinas 101. There's several different uh, uh, entries of this, and it's basically like several lecture series. The reason that I'm affirming this has to do with with what's going on with this sort of Thomas resurgence or whatever you want to call it, is Thomas, as I said, is a mixed bag. Um, the Summa, and I haven't spent a lot of time reading the Summa, but the Summa is broken up into basically it's three parts. The first part is basically what we're, we've been calling the metaphysics of God. Like it's the it's the uh, theology proper, um, it's Trinity, it it touches on incarnation in some areas, but, but Christ comes later. Um, the second part is basically Christian ethics. And the third part is, um, Christ, the church and sacraments. And so if you read through the Summa, um, which is extremely long, uh, you get, you read through the first part of it and you're mostly like nodding your head. You're like, yeah, yeah, this seems right. Like this is, this is what I'm familiar with. This is normal, you know, Protestant reformed, um, metaphysics. Right. Then you get to ethics and you're like, okay, like what he's saying is right and wrong. Okay, I'm mostly on board with that, but I'm not sure I want to put as much weight into how effective our works are and what they accomplish and how they, you know, ingratiate us with God. And then you get to part three and you're like, okay, this stuff about Jesus is good, but everything else is way off the rails. And I think what what gets missed is we do, and, and Reform Forum did a, um, did a conference a while back and they were kind of on a weird anti-Thomas kick for a little while and they still sort of are from a different angle. They did a conference and they showed that Thomas's theology is an integrated whole, right? Thomas was a master systematician, um, one of one of the finest systematic theologians that the church has ever seen in terms of his method and his coherency. His outcomes were not so great, but his his method and his coherency was amazing. And that has implications, right? If you're if you're we said it a couple, I don't know if it was last week or a couple weeks ago, or maybe it was on a different show I heard it. But um if we're talking about a God who justifies in a radically different way, then even if our theology proper is the same, then we still in some sense are just talking about a, a different God because we worship the God who justifies by grace alone through faith alone. And if you're worshiping a God who justifies by grace and works, then in some sense you're worshiping a different God. So I'm only bring up this podcast and commend it to our listeners because if you're going to dive into Thomas 
and I'm not saying you shouldn't. I don't know that it's particularly useful for most of us, but if you're going to dive into Thomas, it really is beneficial to read and understand and study Thomas from the Roman Catholics, because Thomas's theology was not all of that impressive to most people while he was alive, but it later became sort of enshrined as the formal Roman Catholic theology of the church, right. conciliarily enshrined. It was, it was, it wasn't like they said Thomas was inspired, but they took that language and they made it ex cathedra speech. And so understanding what Roman Catholics think Thomas is saying is very, very important. Doesn't mean they got it all right. There are ser- several areas in Thomas's thought that I think modern Roman Catholics get wrong, um, predominantly about how heavily he was involved in in predestination. He's virtually right. in you know uh, indistinguishable from the Protestant scholastics on certain elements of predestination. But that said, this is a podcast that you will learn about Thomas and about Thomas's theology from a genuine Roman Catholic Thomist. And so I think there's value if you're going to dabble with Thomas, which is a perfectly fine thing to do, as long as you are are weighing out your diet with a good dose of the confessions and some Calvin and just really right good, on. steady Bible reading. It's perfectly fine to dabble in a little Thomas and to read and to understand what's going on. But it's important for you to understand not just from what I do actually think is a little bit of like rose colored glasses, modern Protestant Thomism and fatuation that's going on in some sectors of Protestantism. It's important for us to see with eyes open what Thomas's theology wrought. And he didn't have anything to do with that, but what, what developed out of Thomistic thought, particularly in that third part and the church and the sacraments and how all of that functions that's a part of his cohesive system. And so if you're going to adopt his metaphysics, you also need to understand what it leads to and how it, how it um, impacts soteriology, how it impacts uh, the nature grace dualism. All of that stuff is important. And so you have to understand it in order to understand how you build logical stop gaps to prevent you from sliding off, off the end. If you adopt his Uh, his theology uncritically in one area, it likely will lead you to adopt his theology uncritically in other areas. We shouldn't be adopting any one figure's theology uncritically. So this is a little bit affirmation, a little bit denial, but I I think it's a well done. It's mostly like a set of lectures. It wasn't recorded as a podcast. It's it's a lot of classroom lectures. So sometimes it's hard to listen to at faster speeds because the audio is not great, but it really is good. And it, it covers not just the theology of Aquinas, but it covers things like his life, his piety, some of this religious weirdness that we're talking about and joking about with Padre Pio. There's a, there's a lot of Luther hate, um, for, for reasons that Catholics love. Um, (laughs) seems like they just have to bash on Luther. Um, uh, that's fine though. Luther did his share of bashing on Catholics, I suppose. <laughs> so turnabout's fair game. But um, so yeah, check it out. You can just search Aquinas 101. There was like six different sets of um, of episodes, but they're numbered in order, so they do they do move progressively. You're not going to be able to just like add it to your feed. Um, it's going to all be like old episodes that are bounce at the top. So if you use like like Pocket Casts or Beyond Pod, that automatically generates your playlist. It's going to mess with that a little bit. Um, but yeah, it's check, check it out. I mean, it's interesting stuff and it's, it's worth listening to and understanding from the Roman Catholic perspective, what Thomas is all about. And I think that then again, it just drives us back to understanding that even when we take a particular figure's theology, whether it's Aquinas or Athanasius or Augustine or Calvin, we have to understand where they're coming from, what context they're in, where their warts of their theology might be. And then we have to always compare that with what the scripture teaches. And, and 
Sometimes that means we have to say Thomas is kind of a chump in terms of his soteriology, and he maybe even just stumbled upon good good, good metaphysics, good theology proper, um, but probably not. I mean, I think Thomas I think Thomas was a believer. He was a product of his age. I think he probably trusted Jesus, and, and there was a lot of confusion about what that meant in that period in the church. Um, I'm sure that there's going to be all sorts of people on Twitter that are going to come after me for saying, I think. I think Thomas is probably in heaven, but I don't really care. So check it out. Aquinas 101. There's a lot of them. Um, listen to them. It's good stuff. And it again, it, it's a lot of the same stuff. You'll you'll find yourself listening to this and like nodding me like, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. And then you're like, yeah, yeah. Whoa, 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 whoa. What, what, no, what, 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 no. what? Yeah. So it's a lot of that. I find myself doing that as I'm listening to it. Yeah, that's good, though. That's a good reminder of what we talk about, like affirmations, for instance, we're saying there are things that are worth listening to. We're not saying that we condone them. We give 100% agreement yeah. to them. But in some ways, that's the reason why you listen. And to go to get a resource like you just suggested here, which is essentially to borrow the old phrase straight from the horse's mouth, that's important. Mm-hmm. It's better to go to somebody that actually knows what they're talking about here. This sounds like a great resource for that. So yeah. people should check that out. Again, it's good to like read broadly, listen broadly, but always root yourself in the scriptures. I think I'm paraphrasing from like an old quote from, uh, what's his name? Um, Spurgeon, right? Like read yeah. lots of books, but, but live in the Bible, something like that. Yeah. That that's just good advice, but there's nothing wrong, especially with interacting with those things, because I think that the, it can be helpful. So if you're like Thomas curious, I think this sounds like a really great resource to understand because it. like the thing is like if people are talking about it and it, you know, it's a bit like finding a band and you think like, you know, you find something and you're just like, this is awesome. Everybody should yeah. listen to this. Like, this is great. Everybody should read this and love it the same way that I do. Like, that's okay. Yeah. And a lot of times we just get ourselves like just fired up over those things. So it's sometimes helpful to know what everybody else is talking about or what the internet is all riled up about these days. So, but it's good to have like a resource you can trust. So that's why, we recommend or affirm with a lot of these types of things. Yep. Yep. What about you? What are you, what are you on the positive side this time? Yeah. So mine is like super quick and it's, I'm going to deviate. I'm going to get off the Catholic highway. Although you could use this resource for Catholic means. I don't, I prefer you don't, (laughs) but you definitely could. So um, maybe like me, you're the kind of person that reads articles on the internet and you want to share something with somebody. Maybe sometimes it's behind a paywall or maybe sometimes it's just like difficult or annoying to share that thing because the web address that you all gets all weird when you share it. I have a solution for you. So rest assured, I'm affirming with this thing called archive today. Oh. You can find it by going to archive.ph and what this brilliant little beauty does is you drop in a URL that's alive and it basically creates a snapshot of the web page that will always be available even if the original page disappears. So this thing I keep finding for like all kinds of purposes. Like, so say, I don't know, you're looking at something that might uh, move away through time. Say you, you're looking at, I don't know why you would, but somebody out there probably is, currency rates between the US dollar and the euro. And you want them at a particular point in time, you want to save that, use this website. Or you're looking at a real estate listing, or again, you're just sharing an article from your favorite source. You can use this to create a URL that you can share, or you can download an image of it, or you can uh, actually save like a copy of it. It's just a great way to essentially do what the internet was never made for. And that was to basically take something and encapsulate it in time and have it and be able to share it with somebody else. Yeah. So if you ever thought I'd like to do that, or I'd like to print the internet or save it for posterity's sake, I actually thought this was kind of lame at first, but I find myself using it a lot for sharing articles. It's also like just like a more convenient way 
to send somebody an, an, a link that gives them like a, the image of the article and they can just read through it quick because like you never know, you know, you share a lot of articles, right? Like you yeah. never know how it's going to show up when somebody else tries to access it. So this is just like a better way to do that so that you, you're, you're insured that they're going to have access to it and that they're going to be able to see exactly the thing that you're looking at that you want to share. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think this is great. I think um, there are a lot of times that I would like to store an article, but I don't necessarily want to yes, have to exactly. go back to the full yes, web page. Um, this is going to be very useful to me in this productivity second brain kick that I'm doing is I can, instead of trying to like manually put the article into, the, into my note system, I can just toss a link to this instead. So that way I never have to worry about the article yes. disappearing. You got to just toss it in there and then do my note taking based on that. What I've been doing is like, like copying the entire text of the article and then I have to like <laughs> fix the formatting. So this is pretty sweet. I'm pretty excited about it. Yes. You, man, you've been on like really good, like app productivity affirmations for I'm a trying. while now. Listen, I feel like our roles here. have reversed there. No, this is great. It is great for saving articles. There is a fun feature on that same page at archive.ph where you can search for basically archive save snapshots according to the website. So I put in www.reformedbrotherhood.com, one of the best places on all the internet. Yeah. Um, nobody has uh, done archive. There Nobody's has taken been a snapshot. Because that's the one I tested the webpage <laughs> on. Yeah, this I was a little is disappointed. Sweet. I'm stoked yeah, about I was this. A, I was a little disappointed. So, all right. So let's let's get into it. Everybody can use that to say so again, it's great for I tell you what. You know, you want to know like the perfect combo, like the perfect, like the peanut butter and jelly of the internet and saving things. Pair that up with monergism.com. Oh, you yeah. got yourself like a winner right there. Anyway, speaking of uh, monergism, let's, you like that? See, I was, it's website, nice. and, which is a resource, yes. but also what God does in soteriology. Okay. Nice. Anyway, so let, let's get into this because I think it's at one point when we first envisioned affirmations and denials, we thought, how long could this go? Like max of like 15 <laughs> minutes? Yeah. And now like basically our podcasts are half affirmations and denials, which we get into lovely spiritual conversation, of course, about we can't separate those two things. Uh, but we also want to talk about the thing that we're here to talk about. So yeah. with all that prolegomena out of the way, we're in this series about soteriology. We talked about calls. And really now we're after this idea of what it means when we talk about double imputation, which seems like we're not talking about double predestination because sometimes you put double in front of something in Calvinism and people just flip out and lose their minds <laughs> because that's all they think of. Um, and here's what we're after. I, I don't want to bury the lead anymore. This idea that our sin is to just put it out there to start with our sin is imputed to Jesus and his righteousness is imputed to us. And I would submit to most listeners that modern, evangelical, lukewarm kind of Christian faith tends to err on one side or the other, not to think about both. But in that twofold transaction, we're going to see that God does not compromise his integrity in providing salvation for his people. But instead, he's going to punish fully sin after it has been imputed to Jesus, which makes has to make logical sense. And that's why, of course, he's able to be both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, as Paul writes in Romans 3. So my sin goes to Jesus and his righteousness comes to me. And so I say, let's talk about that because that is the jam. Like, I'm here for that. And yeah. that like, is an amazing truth that I think is really undervalued. It's like in a bear market, at least one side of that and kind of our modern expression of evangelical faith. 
Yeah, so we talked about we talked about this a little bit on a previous episode in this series when we talked about the active and passive righteousness of Christ. And it's right. it's a related topic, but double imputation is now what happens when we take that active and passive righteousness and we actually apply it to the believer. So we kind of talked about it before in terms of Christ, his ministry, his work and his presence and his standing before the Father involved both both an active righteousness of obtaining merit according to the terms of the covenant of works, right? Positive obedience, positive favor from God that he earned. And then passive righteousness, which is the suffering that he receives as he takes on our sin. Now the double imputation is how that, that reality now gets applied to the believer. So that's where it comes in in soteriology. And so Jesse gave a very succinct description and definition is that Christ imputes his righteousness to us, right? And impute is a is a term that's a an economic term, right? It's an yes. accounting term. It's not a, it's not an infusion. He doesn't infuse his righteousness to us. He imputes his righteousness to us. So there's no there's no um there's no metaphysical exchange going on here. I think right. that's one of the errors that happens is we look at this and we think oh well, like there's an actual like there's like a transmission of some sort of substance like Christ pours out his righteousness into us. Like we're this open vessel and he pours his, you know, our sin onto him. Like he's an open vessel. In reality, this is an accounting term. So Christ gives to us his account. He says, here's my account. I'm signing over my bank account to you. Basically. Now, all that I had is yours. All of it is yours. And now he's taking our debt and he's signing off and accepting that debt. So there's an exchange going on and it's a real exchange but it's not a metaphysical exchange. And the reason this is important is because we we have to avoid the idea that Christ becomes a sinner. Sometimes when we talk about double imputation, we talk about what happens on the cross. We can we can stray into this language where like Christ becomes a sinner. Um, Luther is actually in one of his table talks, which you know is always going to be fun when you work someone's quoting <laughs> table talk. Um, is he has this like. It's, I think it's probably apocryphal because no one can provide a real right. source for it. And anytime you get run into a Roman Catholic trying to bash you over the head with it, they always quote this one, this one collection of table talk statements that is, is impossible to find. And that all, it all stems back to like a slide deck that was circulating around the internet at one point. But all of that aside, he says like Christ is the adulterer. Christ is the greatest sinner. Christ right. is the drunkard. Christ did this. Yes. And in Luther's very bombastic way, he's trying to articulate that the sin that we commit, Christ really bears that penalty. So much so that he, in the sight of the Father, bears our status as sinner. But he does not actually become a sinner, essentially. Exactly. And we, the same thing is true, and this is why we talk about sola, uh, sola fide justification and how righteousness is forensic, not analytical. And we'll maybe we'll parse out some of those terms in a future episode, but we don't become essentially righteous, right? We put on, this is why the language of the scripture talks about putting on Christ it uses the language of like a new robe. We, we bear his white garments. All that language is talking about taking something that's external to us and putting it over the top of us. So we put on new clothes, we put on Christ's righteousness, we put on the the characteristics of Christ, we put that on. That language is really important in the scriptures. That's what we're talking about with imitation. It's a real transfer, it's a real exchange, but it's not a metaphysical transformation right. of either party in the imputation. 
So I wanted to get that out of the way because that is a pitfall that we run into. And this is where you do, you run into some of this stuff in like, um, in some federal vision theology, right? Where, where Christ's righteousness actually is transforming us from the inside out. There's an infusion of righteousness. They sometimes talk about that. That's present in new perspectives from Paul, going back to kind of what we talked about last week. If you get faith wrong, you also get what faith receives wrong. So faith right. receives Christ's righteousness, but not as an infusion or metaphysical transformation, but as a receiving of his accounts. We are considered, we're reckoned to be righteous, and Christ is reckoned to be sinful on our behalf. And then that right. sin is punished in his body on the cross. So once once we get that in place, now we can have a whole different conversation about what this does and how it works. But we wanted to I wanted to land that first. Yeah, that's helpful. That at the outright let me just say this. How dare you, sir, bring up <laughs> accounting and economic terms before oh, I yeah. could. You <laughs> you beat me to this. When I knew that we were going to talk about this, I was like, finally. I can bring in my day job into a place <laughs> where like it makes more sense. But I'm glad you brought that up because like it's one of those things that it, like we understand transactions and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. We understand like transactions bring about some finality and that transactions by their nature establish value. There is something that takes place when we undergo something that's purchased and sold in which we understand that there's not a change in the metaphysical state, but a change in ownership and a change in status. But that status is not metaphysical. Like when you buy a car and it becomes yours, it's not like you become the car or the car becomes you. And yet at the same time, there's a change in status that is right. like totally legitimate, totally understood, totally like legally protected. And I think it's important for people to understand that like we find this just like replete ubiquitously all over the Old and New Testament, both Old and New Testament. And that idea is found like principally, I would say like in the Greek word, like logazomai. Yep. And I just want you to ask me, what resource do you think I used <laughs> to trace that bad boy down and see where it occurs in the New Testament? Logos Bible software. Yeah, you got it. So like, here's a great example of we're talking about double imputation, which is a description of doctrine and theology that is repeat throughout the scriptures. And again, we've said it before, but something like Logos Bible software is a great way for you to embed yourself in this research process. It's like basically having all these like research assistants that all go for out to the world for you and categorize a bunch of stuff and synthesize it and bring it together and allow you to search through it. But you have it all your own on the computer of your choice or on the mobile device of your choice. And this is another great example of being able to search for something like this idea of this word that's translated to count or consider or impute and to find all the places it's used and then be able to cross-reference them and do the research yourself. So like here is a place where I'm using it to help me to understand how is it that it's applied in the scriptures, right? Yeah. Well, if if I how dare I beat you to the economic accounting language, how dare you beat me to the logos <laughs> promotion? So I was actually going to call Touché. out Logos Bible Software because um we've talked about this before, but they have a really good uh depending on which base package you purchase, um they have a theology guide feature. So you can type mm. in a theological concept. They don't have every theological concept, but usually if you type in justification, you get a pretty decent article. Um, sure. And I'm not sure why, but it tends to be from a from a more reformed perspective. Some of that is driven <laughs> actually by the resources that you purchase because it's true. What Logos is doing is there's there's built-in articles and stuff, but it's actually synthesizing all of the resources that you own 
into this theology guide. It's not just a pre-built guide. It's not like a handout sheet that you get. It's actually pulling together resources that are tagged with justification. So if you purchase the reformed package, for example, it gives you a host of reformed resources. It's going to customize that guide based on the resources you have. You can also do a fact book on imputation, which says imputation is, quote, the act of reckoning a legal debit or credit to an account. The term was used in Greco-Roman legal language and was understood in secular commerce as enter into the books. Right. So we're not just making this up when we say imputation is a is a forensic term. It's an accounting term. Right. It literally right. was an accounting term. It literally was right. what would happen when you pay <laughs> right. for your you pay for your um, you know, you pay for your meal, you give them a coin, and then that coin gets entered into the books. So I think this is such a great resource. And I'm not just saying that because they're sponsoring the, the podcast. We've been we've been saying that Lagos is amazing since we've had a show. Um, it's kind of a nice, a nice little bonus that we get a little bit something for it now, but um, it really is a phenomenal resource. You can get the base package um, for or the fundamentals package for fifty dollars. Someone in the Reform Brotherhood Telegram chat uh, told us uh, just yesterday that if you want a copy of the Summa, this is this is how you can really like work the system. If you wanted to buy the Summa. Theologica on Lagos, which if you wanted to study Thomas, this would be a great way to do it. You're going to pay $50 for that. You could buy the Verbum base package, which is like the Roman Catholic version of uh, Lagos. You could buy the Verbum base package for $35 and get the Summa as part of it. So you really do get more resources for less if you purchase these packages, um, or you can always just purchase an individual package as well. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's great. And I just want to hang on then for a second to like this idea of like the transactional nature of this, because again, that is what it is without all the trappings that sometimes we have in the West of what it means like to undertake a transaction. We're not talking about purchasing a used car, for instance. This is a word, like we've said a couple of times, it comes from this world of commerce and accounting. It means to charge or like to reckon. And I would say like in, in, American English, we don't use the word to reckon a lot, but like to give just like, and this comes from logos to just give like another example of where this is translated in the same way. Maybe we'll get to second Corinthians eventually uh, in like the third hour of this episode (laughs) in acts 19, Demetrius, many may remember he's the silversmith in Ephesus and he spoke against Paul's preaching by saying, and there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may be even deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia in the world worship. So you have this sense, like the same word that we're talking about here that's re- representing of justification or imputation is literally this idea of like their debits and credits. Yeah. And for those that are not into accounting and, you know, besides accountants, who would be? because it's accounting. Um, I mean that with the greatest respect to all of our accounting brothers and sisters. (laughs) There's always like, and this is what bothers me about like kind of this lukewarm evangelicalism, this idea that like when we talk about justification, that somehow it's just like one debit or one credit that Christ does everything. And isn't it great that Christ has, Christ has granted to us amnesty. Amnesty is not the gospel, right? The gospel is so much more than that. And unless we think about double imputation, where we end up is, isn't it great that Christ has forgiven you? Yeah, that's fine. But you notice that like even John himself, he writes, if we confess our sins, 
God is faithful and just, not just to remove them, but to grant to us essentially righteousness. Yeah. So it's one thing to be able to say like the penalty that ought to be owed to you is gone. That's fine. But you walk out of the door of that courtroom and your life is principally the same, except that you weren't punished. It's not filled with greater joy. It's not filled with greater blessing. And so what happens here in double imputation is that we don't just not receive what we deserve. We get everything that we could not earn, even right. if we were as good as we possibly could be. Right. And that's the great message of the gospel. The gospel is, by its nature, in its essential form, double imputation. Yeah. And a really good, you know, it, it's amazing how the Bible has all these really good ways to explain itself. It's almost like we should let the Bible be its own interpreter. <laughs> the best the best way to comprehend this, and I think most, most of our listeners are um, are married. I think that our demographic is pre- predominantly people who are married, but even people who aren't married can understand some of the legal realities that happen when a person becomes married. And sure. so one of the things that happens is if someone has a bunch of debts and the other person has a ton of money, when that person is, when that, that marriage happens, I mean, I know it's not immediate, there's legal things that happen, but when that happens in a very real sense, that person who is wealthy takes on the debt of the person who is is in debt. And the person who is is in debt takes on the wealth of the person who is wealthy. And depending on you know how much debt versus how much wealth, either that results in a net positive or a net negative, right? If the wealth overcomes right. the debt, then there's a net positive. This is how it is important for us in terms of understanding the incarnation. Now to bring it back to Christology, this is why the mediator had to be both God and man, right? So what we're doing uh-huh. is we're, we're taking a finite debt, right? There's, there's an infinite nature to the punishment of sin because of the, the punishment is commensurate with the one who is sinned against. So, so sin is, uh, the punishment of sin is infinite, not because sin itself is somehow infinite, because how could a finite creature create, you know, generate anything that's infinite? Right. But the offense against God is infinite because the offense, the offended one is infinite. Nevertheless, though, Christ takes on a finite sin and he he reckons that to himself and then he destroys that in his body on the cross. That's right that punishment is served on the cross. And he reckons to us an infinite righteousness that swallows up that that sin, that that unrighteousness. And so it would be like if a person who had a a thousand dollar debt married a person who was a millionaire, that thousand dollar debt is just swallowed up in the wealth that the the richer party brings to the marriage. And so both parties are reckoning to each other what they bring to the relationship, what they bring to the union. But the in the the example of this wealthy person marrying a debtor, it changes the debtor, right? It changes the debtor on a fundamental level, right. but not on an essential level. Yes, to go back exactly. to what we were saying is the person really goes from being a debtor to being someone who is not a debtor. That's a real legal change. However, it's not a metaphysical change. They don't go from being somehow not a human to being a human or being yes. from being a human to being somehow not a human. They go from being a debtor, which is a legal status, to being not a debtor, which is a different legal status. But it's also not a legal fiction. And that's important, especially if you're going to talk with Roman Catholics. It's not a legal fiction. This is a real transfer. It's a real imputation that changes, results in a real legal change of status not a legal fiction. Yeah. I think that is like the critical point because 
one of the things that we need to emphasize is that there is a real change here, but it doesn't happen like at that metaphysical right. level. But it doesn't mean that there isn't like that isn't a real change. So is it okay if like I invoke Luther, Luther here? Like we've already mentioned Luther like a couple yeah. different times. But I think I it's like, okay. okay. I, I'll I allow permission. it. I appreciate that. I'll so, text Chad Bird real quick. I, I'm just kidding. I don't have Chad's, <laughs> I don't have Chad's cell phone number. He wouldn't answer my text anyways, I'm sure. So like from the floor then, here's here's one of the things that, one of the many things that I think about with Luther all the time where I think, man, he just nailed it, is his, oh man, no pun intended, his like expression, <laughs> the, the famous Latin formula of symbol uses epicator. And I right. think like that actually gets like misunderstood a lot of time. But it's idea, like I think what, what Luther was was trying to drive at here. And again, I like what you're saying. Like he can be, he was bombastic. He was trying to get a response. So, you know, I've, I've read as well this, at least like in sense of like derivative sense that like Luther said, Jesus was the greatest sinner who ever lived. Right. Now, of course, what he meant by that was not the identity of Jesus as sinner, but the one who literally took on sin. And I think like when we, we think of like second Corinthians, we do have to go there. We, I think part of what has misserved the modern church is that we don't consider Jesus actually taking on the sin in a literal sense. Right. That like the weight of that sin was somehow lesser to him. It was somehow like a mockery. It was a shadow. It wasn't really represented in the essence of him fighting through that or that, that being an actual weight on him in punishment. But it must be, it must be that way for us to have this kind of double limitation. That's right. essentially what we're implying. So, Luther was saying, I think, in this this famous formula, simul justus et peccator, he was saying that our justification, that we are at the same time righteous and we're at the same time sinful. He was saying that in one sense, we're just. In another sense, we're sinners. And in and of ourselves, under God's scrutiny, we all still have sin. That is the reality. But, but by God's imputation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ to our accounts, we are considered just this is like, I, I've increasingly grown to think that maybe the tagline of our podcast is God is just and justifier. Yeah. This is how he does that very thing. This is how he honors his character. And yet he sacrifices, he brings out of himself, as it were, his son, in a, in a sense, to, to undertake the full weight of that punishment. So Jesus was not sin, but he was made to be sin, though he had no sin in him. And he is bearing like think of a single person, you know yourself best. I mean, not you, Tony, but like anybody listening, you know yourself best. You can consider or at least conceive of in the smallest way, the sins that you have committed, the sins you're committing right now by both like objectively the way in which you are actively disobeying God, you are a covenant breaker and the ways in which you are passively failing to comply. Let's say it that way with yeah. all of the greatness and the glory that of the law that God requires. There is both that current state, the past state, and everything you could possibly conceive of in the future that you do not understand, the unknown unknowns right now. The weight of that for one person to bear is excruciating. Yeah. I mean, and I mean that literally in the sense of crucifixion. And yet we have in Christ doing that for all of those whom he has called, all of the elect. This is a weight that should move us in some way to an emotional response. But to go back to my 
critique of the Shia LaBeouf interview. We do not become emotional so that we understand that, but that it does move in our hearts in a way that is grounded with the reality and the truth and the doctrinal understanding that Christ has made a way that he has actually put all of this to death, that the legal demand that was on you for sin and all of the debt that, that you owed, that you recognized was a mountain that you could not crawl under, that was crushing you, that was messing with your ability to literally exist and then to be punished for all of eternity. God has made a way for that through his son in which he has removed that debt, but he has not removed it by just like kind of pushing it aside, by flicking his fingers or casting a spell or, you know, swishing around a magic wand and saying, oh, it's all good. It's all gone. It has been paid for. Yeah. And that's why it's so important to, to back to where you started, understand these as accounting terms, because accounting is unforgiving in the sense that something must be resolved. Yeah. If you want to remove a debt, it must be paid because of double entry in the accounting ledger. Yeah. And God makes a way for it to be removed because it's paid for in Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good way for us to sort of wrap up the episode. And and one thing I'll, I'll add just as a, a little bit of a, I don't know, teaser for coming episodes, Ooh. just because there's not a metaphysical change in imputation or in justification, right? Because this episode really is, could be also have been called what is justification, right? We could have, could have gone that for way. sure. Doesn't mean there isn't a metaphysical, metaphysical change in the Christian. It just isn't happening in justification. Right. And that's really right. important. And that is precisely to to go back to the Roman Catholic power hour here at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> that is precisely what Rome gets wrong, right? Yes. For them, justification is a, a metaphysical change. And yes. it increases over time to go back to what we said last week. There's a progression in your justification. That's why we say the corruptions in Protestant theology, Reformed theology that we talked about last week in these mistaken understanding of what faith is, they are materially the same as the Roman Catholic error because they create this progression in our justification where we become progressively more acceptable to God in some sense. Right. And that that is and, and largely based on our own our own efforts and our own contribution. So we're going to get there. The, the gospel and, and the grace that Christ gives us does change us. But first, what he does is he changes our legal status. And I mean, first in sort of a logical sense. And in terms of time, right. most of this stuff will happen simultaneously. And we'll, we'll explore some of those elements more next week when we talk about conversion. But he changes us. He changes our status. He changes our relation to him. We're going to talk about adoption. He changes our, uh, our actual, our essential righteousness is changed in sanctification that process is completed and and brought to full fruition in glorification right so so it's not just that there is this legal status change it's just that that's what happens in justification but justification is just sort of the beginning of uh, of this change in the christian it's the beginning in in we take on this new status and out of that, out of that new status is where the rest of our, you know, that's the that's now the context that the rest of our salvation occurs in, right? Amen. And again, this this all happens temporally. It happens basically at the same time. I think for most people, I don't know that I want to say that that's a an axiomatic statement, but in terms of the logic of things, justification, the status change, is the beginning of the process, 
And it's not a beginning of a process of transformation in justification. It's a beginning in that our legal status has changed. We now have a right to all of the privileges. We gain this in adoption, but, but this sets up the context by which we have a right of, for all the privileges of the sons of God. So we no longer are coming before God as an impoverished debtor who can, can never pay our debt. Right. right. We're not the unmerciful servant coming before the master begging for our debt to be released. Now we're the prodigal son coming home, hoping beyond hope that our father will let us work for him and finding out that we are just as treasured as if we had never wandered away. Amen. Not only are we just as tre- treasured as if we had never wandered away, we are just as treasured as if we had remained and earned every possible favor yes. and blessing from the father that could possibly be given. Because that's what Jesus did for us. That's what he did, and that's what he gives us. So you're right. I think we could change the t- the tagline from Honor Everyone, Love the Brotherhood to God is the Just and Justifier. <laughs> and the reason for that is because that is the central feature of the Reformed understanding of the gospel, is right. that God is at the same time just and the justifier of those who are in Christ. And if it wasn't for that, there'd be no hope. There'd be no hope, yeah. and we should, just, we should just close up shop and, and be done with it. Amen. Yeah. Speaking of closing up shop, let's do that for this episode. But if it's okay, let's let Paul have the the last word under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, where he writes to the church of uh, in Corinth. And he says, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. Amen. Well, Jesse, until next time, honor everyone. Love the Brotherhood. <laughs>